Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. This is episode 20. It's October 23rd. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And today we're going to be talking to you about a lot of pinball, a few video games, and probably the worst tabletop game I've ever seen. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting time. But before we get into all that, let's do our introductions. Tony, what's been going on with you? Well, I finally entered the home stretch on the Wheel of Time. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just finished book 12. I'm working my way through book 13 so i'm on the i'm down to two books left and the series is uh definitely hits its stride or comes back to its i don't want to say it hits its stride because that implies it was slow before or something like that but it's one of those stories where the last three books are basically just a never ending crescendo to the end where it just keeps everything is just awesome so that's a nice step up because overall with the series this time and the first time I read through the series, I feel that like book nine and book 10 are the two weakest books in the entire series. The 10 being especially weak. It's not like it's a bad book. I mean, I'm not saying it's like a one out of five book, but considering when most of the books are something that you would put, you know, as a four uh, to suddenly get a two, and have it followed by another two kind of slows things down a real chunk and then immediately goes straight to fives for the rest of the book. So, and other than that, um, I have been playing a whole bunch of overwatch surprise. Yep. I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah, I know. And, uh, I've watched the first two episodes of the new season of black mirror, which is just as so far, it's been just as good as the previous two seasons of Black Mirror. And that's a show that I highly recommend if you like kind of creepy five minute into the future kind of Twilight Zone ish type things. It, that whole entire series, every se- there isn't a bad episode of that entire series. And a couple of them are just like heart rendingly uh, uh, disturbing. Hmm. Interesting. I might have to check that one out then. Oh, yeah. No, it's really, really good. And other than that, I have not been, I've been working a whole lot and being on call and unable to get songs out of my head. But I think that's a fact of life for about everybody. Yeah, it is a common problem that plagues many of us. And what have you been up to? Oh, well, let's see. Since the last podcast recording, I had a birthday. So I get most of a lot of my video games I get as gifts. So I just sort of leave them on wish lists and I rely on that to be sort of easy fodder for people to be able to get me things. <laughs> so I got uh, Far Cry Primal, which is the only one of the games I've received I have not yet actually tried. Uh, Forza Horizon 3, which I played a little bit of the Horizon 2 and liked. So I thought that'd be a fun racing game. Uh, the newest Hitman game. Um, I'm trying to play it properly and be stealthy. So far, I've been doing okay at that. And what do you mean properly? I, I mean, Hitman is you just load up and you walk through and you wipe out half of the town to get the one guy. Isn't that how Hitman works? That's how it worked in the older games. But in this game, you don't even start with all of those automatic weapons and stuff. Those are not at your disposal. So you have to earn them. 
So as I'm going about, I'm trying to, I'm earning them, but uh, generally I go about and spend 45 minutes to an hour on a mission. And then at the very end, I get frustrated with whatever the last objective is. And then I'll just run through that one and do something really uh, obnoxious and get me called out. And then I'll just try and make the escape before I am dropped as a character. (laughs) And it's been working. Okay. Uh, and then Overwatch. I did get Overwatch for Xbox One. So I've been putting in a lot of Overwatch up until this Friday, which is when Battlefield 1 hit. And I pre-ordered that. So the last three days have been Battlefield 1. A lot of Conquest, a little bit of Rush in their new operation mode. So I'm enjoying that. I got also, for as a birthday gift, a bunch of uh, Comet LEDs from Comet Pinball. And I'll include a link to Comet Pinball in the show notes. But I've converted Firepower over. So other than a few flasher bulbs, everything has been shifted. Pretty much everything has been shifted now in the back box and in the play field to LEDs, which I like for two reasons. One, they draw a lot less power and put out next to no heat, which is good. The plastics I've been through enough as it is. And the other is I like to play in the dark. And so incandescent light bulbs just aren't all that bright on the older games. They just, they weren't designed so you could actually see the ball all that well in the dark. So I've doubled the luminescence of the play field compared to what the incandescent bulbs were putting out. And so that's helpful. And in the show notes, I will have a link to a little 10 second video I threw together of a side by side of my firepower with the incandescence and my firepower with the LEDs. So people can look and see the difference because it, I mean, it's noticeable in terms of the colors that show in the art and the brightness. So those have been my primary things that are in any way entertaining. Uh, and then last week, my AC gave out. It finally rapidly vented out all of its Freon. I noticed it just, it was it was working, but it wasn't cold anymore. Uh, the AC was as old as the house. So it was over 30 years old. So that was a fun $4,500 expenditure, but it's in place. They did not upgrade the circuit breaker. So I will have them back out because we need to go to a lower amperage so that the city will sign off on the permit. But other than that, it seems to be working fine. Well, that's good. I know so those unexpected home things tend to pop up and take huge chunks out of pinball budgets. Well, yeah, in a, in a way, uh, I have been preparing, especially ever since the furnace, which had to be replaced almost six years ago now. I've been setting aside money to be prepared to deal with the air conditioning because I figured it's it's past its life expectancy. So while it was an unfortunate expenditure, I, I had been putting stuff aside to take care of that. But of course, when I look at the bottom line, I'm always like, oh, well, it doesn't look like I should be buying pinballs because I just spent this much. I could have, you know, the sad thing is, is that that price of the AC doesn't buy you any new inbox game, not shipped to your door. At least it doesn't in this day and age. Almost, almost can get you a Stern Pro, but not quite. Speaking of that, speaking of pens and the inability to buy them because of having to buy air conditioning units, I think we should go ahead and segue into pinball. And most of our discussion is going to be about the information that sort of came out at or around Expo. But before we do that, I wanted to, as we noted in the last show, I completed what I guess my research project on American pinball, the very top link in our show notes will be to the folder full of all of the documents regarding American pinball. So those people that are interested in reading and looking through all this stuff and doing whatever they want with it, feel free to go at it. But I went ahead and I've recorded an audio clip that we're going to drop in here in a moment. And it, I couldn't get it under 10 minutes, but I got it under 11. 
And that will just sort of walk through those, uh, those files, those documents and sort of, so if you, if it's helpful to you rather than read it to just sort of hear what is the information that I am putting out there, I, the number of documents I'm putting out aren't all that many. So it's, I mean, it's less than 10, but uh, they were the ones that I thought were the most relevant. And it goes through things from the, uh, ownership angle of the company to how they may be acquiring their parts to how some of their finances are in terms of what they've done to draw together funds. So let's drop that in here. And then Tony and I, we're going to come back and we're going to go into a little discussion, uh, which will segue nicely into Pinball Expo because American Pinball was there. Sure they were. Sure they were. All right, here we go. Audio running. Over the last several weeks, I have conducted an extensive research project into American Pinball in order to try and answer some questions regarding the organization's structure, ownership, and how it is proceeding to try and make pinball machines. I have reached the conclusion of what I think I'm able to find on the public record, and so I want to use this opportunity to summarize the information I have found. In our show notes, you will find a link to my American Pinball research, so you can go over these documents to your heart's content and read and review them in greater detail than I will be providing here audibly. I'm going to attempt to summarize these things in a clear, concise fashion. I know it could be a little dry, though, so if you don't enjoy this portion, skip it and get to the commentary aspects of the podcast with Tony and I. But let us begin. In regards to ownership, which I think is the big question regarding American Pinball, the short answer is I don't know who owns American Pinball. I did obtain the Articles of Incorporation for American Pinball from the Illinois Secretary of State's office, but there's not a lot of information that's really very useful that was included in the documentation. And let me apologize up front for any name mispronunciations I'll be making here and throughout the course of this podcast. I know that Daval Vasani did register the corporation. I can tell you that it was created with 1,000 shares of common stock. Not only were those shares authorized, they were all issued, and there were no amendments submitted to me in my records request, so that means that 1,000 is still standing. But I don't know who owns the 1,000 shares. I don't know the distribution. I don't know the count of the people, much less the names of those who actually hold the shares. So in terms of who actually owns American Pinball Incorporated, I don't know. There are additional documents that the Secretary of State's office has, such as the Corporate Annual Report. However, on the website for the Secretary of State's office, they make very clear that they do not track ownership. They don't require it to be reported. So the likelihood of me being able to do yet another info request, which incidentally do cost me money because they're only giving these out certified, they uh, likely don't have the information. So unfortunately, while I can tell you it's set up as a shareholder structure, anyone, well, I guess up to a thousand people if we're not getting into fractions here, Uh, could own this company, but I just don't know who holds it. So in terms of if you're wondering if a particular person does or does not own it, all I can say is it's possible that they do, but I don't know for sure which entities are involved. The other aspect that I had released on Pinside a while ago, let's talk a little bit about the business license. That, I know, caused a lot of curiosity And that is why I actually pulled the Articles of Incorporation, because the business license application had listed a John P. as an emergency contact. Now, emergency contact does not necessitate that it's an employee or an owner. It just means that for the city, or in this case, the village of Streamwood, that a John P. is a potential contact besides Duval 
to be notified if something is going wrong, if there's some sort of emergency at the facility. So I did uh, redact the telephone numbers in the folder on these because they did appear to be personal cellular numbers, and I wasn't really comfortable putting those out there, even though they are, again, part of the open record, and anyone who wanted them would be able to pull them from the village of Streamwood. But when I ran the John P. number through one of the reverse telephone lookups, it did indicate John Papaduke as the likely owner, so I'm quite confident that it is indeed him who is listed as an emergency contact. So he at the very least has been determined to be an individual who should be noted for the city of Streamwood to reach out to in the course of some sort of emergency at the facility itself. So that's really all I can talk about in terms of the ownership and employee arrangements. It's just, it's very difficult on these private companies to get much detail, but this is what I have. And so if it is of use to any of you, I wish you all the best. But let's go ahead and move on to financing. Again, this is going to be a challenge as well, but it's a question that I know has come up. How is American Pinball paying for all of this? Obviously, there's startup. There's a discussion about the you know the need, the money that you would need to raise to produce the Houdinis. But they're also doing this Magic Girl run and giving those out kind of simultaneously, as near as we can tell. I mean, they're showing us images of both machines. So I tried to dig into this, and again, the short answer is I don't know how they're putting the money together. But it, to me, it doesn't look like they are just doing. A wealthy benefactor approach where someone has come in with a lot of cash and is just paying for all of this. And the reason I say that is I did find two mortgage documents, both of which are uh, linked from the show notes in the American Pinball Research folder. So let's talk a little bit about those. Both mortgages are on the same property, and that's the Kingsdale Road property that is listed for the registered agent in the Articles of Incorporation. One mortgage is for $50,000, and the other mortgage is for $120,000. The research folder has copies of both of those mortgages for you to be able to review, but in summation, the differences have to do with the interest rates and when the maturation of the mortgages are in effect. Both mortgages list American Pinball Inc. as the borrower. The $120,000 mortgage is a fixed rate mortgage. And it's note to uh, mature on January 29th, 2021, whereas the $50,000 mortgage is a variable interest rate, and it has a maturation date of January 29th, 2017. So one is obviously much more short-term than the other one. Now, that's all I could find in terms of money being brought in for American Pinball. However, we did hear in the Pinball Magazine podcast interview that the overhead costs were very low. And I believe the main assumption that I'd seen online, which I I think there's good backing for, and I've tried to supply some, is that the actual facility in Streamwood, it does not appear to be owned by Duvall as near as I could tell. Instead, it's owned by Mukesh. Now, Mukesh is the uh, founder of Aimtron. I did get a copy of Aimtron's Articles of Incorporation, and you can see that Mukesh and Duvall, when that was formed, were both on the board of directors. So in addition to the familiar relationship between the two, there is also an, a business relationship. That seemed to be pretty widely known anyway from anyone who had looked into Aimtron, but I do have the documentation that those Articles of Incorporation. I also have a copy of the Streamwood Properties Mortgage Modification, which happened, which shows uh, Mukesh listed as the name involved in that to help provide some additional evidence regarding the ownership there. I have no idea if there's some sort of special rent conditions or there are no rent conditions applied at all and the facility is just being given to American Pinball for use. 
I can't comment on that, but I can say that it does appear to be the case that the property that's actually being used, listed as where the manufacturing would be, or I should just call it the Streamwood property, is in fact controlled not by American Pinball, uh, maybe subleased to them, but but ownership seems to fall back to Makesh. Which leads me to the final piece of research that I looked into, which was where is American Pinball acquiring its parts? There have been several discussions that people have been contacted about pinball parts, parts necessary for the manufacturing of machines, and that they'd heard from American Pinball about them, but I'd not seen any confirmations about anyone saying that they did indeed make such an arrangement. Again, this is something that would be very, very difficult to find much on. I did find something which may be of validity, but I just don't have any idea how critical it may be. And that is that appears the uh, purchasing service, uh, Alibaba, there is an option with them called Alisource Pro where uh, volume buyers can go and use a service to be linked up with uh, thousands and thousands of manufacturers. So in this case, there was an entry for American Pinball Incorporated and I'm amazed, but the Alisource Pro service actually lets people who are not signed in as American Pinball go and look at things, look at things that they were looking into. So while I cannot load, could not load any buying requests, I do have a screen cap of this in the American Pinball Research folder link in the show notes, I uh, did see that the, someone created an American Pinball Inc. profile. Uh, it says that they're an amusement game contract manufacturer. It says that the preferred categories of products are seals, DC motors, and other wiring accessories. And it gives a small summary of buyer activities, which says they had contacted 21 different suppliers through the service, requested one sample, and put in six buying requests. So there's some circumstantial evidence that American Pinball may be using Source Pro to try and find parts for the manufacture of their pinball machines. I have no idea regarding what might have been bought under this name. I can say looking into the volume buyer program that it is set up so that you are supposed to spend over a million dollars in a year through this in order to qualify as a volume buyer. So it does, uh, I mean, Alibaba does sort of expect you to have a fairly sizable purchase record if you're going to be doing it through this mechanism. But anyway, it did crop up when I was looking into the company. So I am including it for those that do actually have some interest in trying to determine maybe where the parts are being acquired. But it's really, I could find no other details than this. And so many vendors are available through Alisource Pro that it's it still would be a needle in a haystack to try and research it further, in my opinion. That pretty much covers everything that I wanted to talk about before I'm on with Tony to have an actual discussion. Uh, the American Pinball Research folder does include copy of the corporate file detail report. There's nothing really to go over on that that wasn't mentioned in any of the other documents I've already covered. I have a few other items that I did not put into the folder. It was mostly my supporting research when I was checking on the veracity of some of these documents I did include. So I've kept them out of here, so it's hopefully not too confusing. But you can always write to uh, write to me, write to me or Tony, actually, at eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or uh, you know you want to discuss anything or you need some other, uh, of these other items and you don't want to go through the hoops that I went through to get them, uh, but hopefully me just having them in this folder makes it easier for any of you that are doing any sort of research and wanting to know more about American Pinball Incorporated. Okay, so here we are. Tony and I are back, and now it is no longer info dump time. It is total commentary opinion time. I don't know what you found 
possibly the most interesting or if any of it was interesting in terms of what I ultimately put together. For my part, I don't think the interesting thing were the articles of incorporation and the ownership angle and any of that. I think especially given how they presented at Expo, well, John Papaduke clearly is a major influence on American pinball and I think probably drove why they're put together. I don't know whether or not he actually owns any shares or not. In a lot of ways, I I don't care. But what I thought was interesting is the two mortgage documents. And the reason why I think it's interesting is, to me, it indicates that they didn't just come in with a pocket full of cash. They actually did have to borrow or chose to borrow to do the startup. And so given the timelines, especially that $50,000 mortgage, which is not a very long mortgage, only for a couple of years, they clearly planned to pay that back pretty quickly. So if this stuff starts getting delayed, uh, you know, I don't want to say that they're going to have a problem because they have other prop. I mean, there are other properties, I think, at the disposal, especially if you start considering Aimtron and Vassini's dad who founded Aimtron as a possible financial source. But, you know, setting all that aside, I think there was a plan here. And based off of what we saw at Expo, I don't think that plan's coming together. No, I, uh, I'm going to agree with you there. I don't, I definitely don't think their plan is necessarily working out how they are wanting them to. And it does seem to me like it's a, I don't want to say a, a destined for failure type thing, but it definitely seems like it was something done light on overall knowledge of the hobby. Yes. And so let's go ahead and quickly give a a very brief synopsis on what happened at Expo with American Pinball. For the few listeners that that listened to us and didn't hear any other pinball podcast, which has already, I'm sure, gone into great detail about what's gone on at Expo. We're not going to dive into every element of Expo. Neither Tony or I were there. So we're just going to hit the highlights. So in regards to American Pinball, they showed up. Vasani and Scott Goldberg were there. As was uh, Joe, who I, I'm afraid I'm blanking on his last name. He's been, he's helped complete projects in the past. And I believe there was a fourth person as well. Uh, J-Pop was not there. Um, and that w- was not surprising. What was surprising to me was Houdini was not there. It was sort of there. The play field was there. The play field lit up. But it wasn't in a cabinet, which I thought was very odd given that it was in a cabinet just a few weeks ago at the G2E Gambling Expo in Vegas. So they sort of brought a, what was described by someone on Pinside as a diorama, which I guess is probably as accurate as a thing. It didn't flip. And Tony and I, I know we both said that we didn't expect them to have a flipping game at Expo. And they're there and they're explaining how they still plan to get the Magic Girls out by the end of the year. But Houdini is a late second quarter 2017 planned release. And that wrong. Oh, well, that's what they're saying. And wrong. and Joe, who's brought in, I guess, to finish off Houdini, indicates that I believe he's indicated it was approximately seventy percent done, but also that he had to rework some of the shots. Now, I'm not a pinball designer, as longtime listeners know. I mostly work in finance and research, so I have absolutely nothing to do with laying out pinball shots. However, my understanding of standard pinball design was you came up with your concepts, you put together something called a white wood, and you made sure that your shots worked before you moved forward with, oh, I don't know, the art and all that. People, attendees at Expo, were going up to this diorama 
and they were looking and they were posting a lot of photos. And then of course uh, those photos ended up on pin side and people on pin side started scrutinizing the photos. And then you start hearing all sorts of things like there are still Zidware logos on some of this stuff. There are screws in the middle of ramps that are going to disrupt the ball because they aren't the right type of screws and they're not in the right position. There were shots that didn't go anywhere. There were shots that couldn't work. There were devices that were conflicting in, with other devices. It, I mean, it's just sort of from a geometry standpoint, I guess the game just doesn't play. As in, even if you ha- if it was in a cabinet and plugged it in and had software for it, it wouldn't work because the ball can't go everywhere it looks like it could go on first blush. So uh, it's it's wow. basically just a complete false mock-up. That is the overall feel I get from it, is that it's made to look good, but it's nowhere near ready to be usable. I think you're right. What I don't understand is it, why were they even at Expo? I think they've hurt themselves very badly by even showing up, uh, showing up with something, considering who their designer is and all that background. I think that them being there, them making announcements like they have and everything, none of it's helped them in any way, shape or form. Everything has hurt them more than even if they, even if the news of them had slipped, I think they would have been hurt less by not coming in than they are by actually showing up like they have. I agree with you. And I I just, because they failed, American Pinball failed to achieve anything positive by being at Expo. All right. So we talked about the Houdini play field and the difference. I mean, basically it's like a step back from G2E from, from anyone's impression. Cause all of a sudden it's not in a cabinet. Uh, no one got a magic girl at Expo. There was at least one person, uh, one of the owners of coin, coin taker who was told he would get his magic girl at Expo. That obviously didn't happen. So, uh, and w- from what was indicated that there are some legal issues inter- that they have to deal with because, you know, J- J-Pop and Zidware were not in the best legal position. And it sounds like from what little I understand, there are some issues regarding the ownership of the Magic Girls uh, because there was a prior attempt to sort of bail out Zidware in 2015. That didn't work out, but the ownership or you know, control of the IP sort of transferred at that point, or is so is being indicated. And then the other thing is that while they were at Expo, they punted on like everything that was not about Magic Girl, but related to Zidware and J-Pop. So, you know, what I'm talking about is Braza, the zombie game, and, uh, and Alice in Wonderland. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that ties in so much towards American Pinball, because even though those are Zidware products... The whole idea is we got J-pop. J-pop did Houdini. American Pinball clearly wants to make money on Houdini, but there are a lot of people who got burned by J-pop through Zidware. So in theory, the only way you satisfy everything is by dealing with Magic Girl and Raza and Alice in Wonderland, not just Magic Girl. But all they're talking about is Magic Girl right now. And when you bring up the others, they'll say they'll address that later. What I think it means is that they have to sell Houdini to even have the possibility of producing Raza and Alice in Wonderland. Which we've talked about in the past is something that we knew was going to probably end up being an issue. But do you think it would work in the sense that, do you think the public, I'm sure some will. I, I mean, I read the thread on Pinside. I know there's some that, are, that love the way Houdini looks and they want to buy it. And then there's some that maybe along the lines of are convinced by this stratagem of American pinball to be basically 
pressured into buying Houdini in the sense that, hey, look, okay, they delivered the magic girls. So they've, they've done something. And now they're telling us, if you want us to do the Raza and Alice in Wonderland, you have to buy our Houdinis. I just, yeah, I, I think most, I, you know, and this is a guess. This is a projection, a project, a prediction. But my prediction is most people would refuse to buy a Houdini if they have a friend who got burned on any of these Zidware games until the whole Zidware situation is resolved. And uh, that would be my approach if I was in the market for this game. I think the solution is entirely wrong. I, I've thought so from the beginning. I think, honestly, none of these games should ever have been made, including Magic Girl. The proper thing would have been to refund everyone's money. That's not going to happen. Maybe a partial set of refunds via bankruptcy would happen, but at least then everyone gets satisfied. Instead, what I'm seeing here is you have people that are in on Magic Girl that might get their magic girls. And some of them are really pushing to try and ensure they get their magic girls. And you will see people, if you check the pin side thread, who are in on a magic girl who are sort of talking up this company. But if they weren't in on Raza and Alice in Wonderland either, it was just the magic girls, then once they get their magic girl, they're done. They don't, I mean, their problem is solved, so to speak. So everyone's right. in, then, everyone's got a different a different angle here. Right. And we'll see. And that's one of those things that's always messed with me is the people who, who were in on the Magic Girl and had the problems with the Magic Girl and they knew they were behind and they needed more money. So they went ahead and bought into everything else as well and just got set even farther back. I don't think, honestly, that those people are ever going to get anything. I'm honestly not sold that the Magic Girl stuff's going to be finished at this point. I think this company as we've talked about in the past, started in a hole that was so deep that they're not going to be able to pull out of. They're going to be torn apart. I mean, Expo did nothing for them. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the most terrible thing that could have happened for them because they did just straight up mock everybody, but it's about as close as you could get. Yeah. The issue is, I think, as a lot of people think, that the production of the Magic Girls was probably J-Pop's compensation for giving them Houdini. But what they, I think, have found out and didn't realize until Joe came in is that Houdini's not done. It's not really all that close to being done. I mean, I suppose 70, I mean, 70% is more than halfway done. So there's that, but it's just, it's not but done. The really idea is not done. If he, ha- if the shots have to be remade and redone, is it 70% if the game's not even physically shootable yet? I if don't there was know. no Whitewood, if the game wasn't shooting, they went started with art assets without making an actual working shooting game first. How is that 70% done? That's the primary work right there. Yeah, not- I don't know. That's Joe's estimate. But here, here's the thing for me and American Pinball in general. I don't feel bad for them about any of this because I think that they're opportunistic. Oh, yeah, definitely. The uh, Because after hearing there's nothing that came out of Expo that told me either Scott or Deval Vasani, the two primaries behind the company, are pinball people. And what this does to me when I read about you know the, the, the narrative summary of what happened and the questions and answers that were provided at Expo is uh, one of my favorite 80s fantasy movies called Crawl. Have you ever seen Crawl? Oh, I've seen Crawl many okay. times. I love Crawl. It's campy. It's it's terrible in a lot of ways, but I love Crawl. Anyway, there's this, there's a scene in Crawl where the beast, which is the main baddie, he's trying to ki- convince the kidnapped princess Lysa to accept him as her new husband. And so what he does to show her that she doesn't need to be, you know, sort of 
fearful that she can accept him is that he assumes the form of the man that she was supposed to marry at the beginning of the show. And her response when he transforms himself is, there's no love in that form. And that's what I see here. Scott and Duvall are not pinheads. There is no love in their form. This is a cash grab, in my opinion, by guys who don't know the industry, don't love the industry, and clearly at this point, I feel, don't understand the industry. And that's really the big problem, because we know companies exist to make money. But this is a small market, and it's a hard industry to get production going in. And if you didn't know, you can just ask Dutch Pinball or Jersey Jack or Highway, who have all struggled with production. And these are people who knew the industry. So why am I going to trust these fresh startup folks walking in with no pinball manufacturing experience? Well, I don't really think that you probably should. Uh, I think the startup is just that, uh, a startup that has put itself into a bad place. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say they're guaranteed to fail. I just think they're in such bad shape that I would be deeply concerned about them. And I would most definitely not do anything that involved giving them money until there was actual, you know, here's my money. I will pick it up now. Right. Type table. And, and I don't know. I don't think they can survive waiting until a game is shipped. I think they're going to have to ask for pre-orders. You know, I don't know. I don't even know if it'll get to that point is the thing. I don't think this company is going to make it through 2017. That's my, yeah. that's my prediction. I think they counted on the J-pop name to get them money quick. They've now learned, and I think it's now dawning on them, just how many problems with the products are in terms going to cost them in terms of time. And not just Magic Girl. I mean, most of our discussion here has been about Houdini and it's not yet done state that's now having to be reworked by another pinball person. They Had they all to do it over again, bringing in Joe and having him design a game for them? would have dropped all this baggage. They wouldn't have had to make these magic girls. They would have been able to, you know, have a a name that was known in pinball. So even though Scott and Duvall aren't pinheads, they bring in a pinball person who's worked on a lot of games, give him free reign, you know, to be a lead designer for once. And you know what? I think they would have had a shot. And I agree with you. There's no guarantee that they will fail. But my guess is because they are not pinball people, quote unquote, that They're just going to want to cut their losses here. Once they run the numbers a little bit more and realize this is never going to be fast. This isn't worth the sacrifice. Let's just fold this now when we haven't lost. I mean, they stressed how they don't have much overhead in the uh, in the pinball magazine interview that they gave. So and when I looked at the business license at the time they got that earlier this year, they only had, uh, I believe, three employees on record. So you know what? They probably haven't invested a ton of money. They could pay off most of those mortgages probably with cash on hand still. So just, you know, I think they're just going to look at all this and be like, it's not worth it. Let's just bail. We'll eat what minor loss we have. It's right off and, you know, move on. Yeah, I think that's a very real possibility. I think it's going to come down to just how much tenacity we're looking at because some people will just keep pushing it until there's – until it's either a complete success or a complete failure. They won't take a step out early. Well, anyway, uh, that's all I had to really say on American Pinball. Uh, in terms of their expo performance, I would say disappointing, but not surprising. I expected at most, or at this is about as best as what I expected out of it. And I honestly sus- suspected that there would have been an even bigger crash and burn. But yeah, I'd call it about what I expected. 
All right. So let's move on to Stern. A uh, couple items regarding Stern. I think let's hit the small one first. The, there was a coffee table art book put out by Dirty Donnie, and in it was his work for the Aerosmith pen. So it's sort of, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to use the term leak. I'm, a, I'm sure Stern approved the coffee table book. Uh, generalized assumptions, which I accept is that Stern is behind schedule on production and probably just didn't remember when that book was coming out. And so the book ended up announcing Aerosmith. But anyway, I looked at the art. I thought the art looked great. Uh, I, I like Dirty, Dirty Donnie's style. I think it really suits pinball and. Of all the bands I had heard in the past when we went and were talking about the next music pin of Stern oh so many episodes ago, I think I indicated then, and if I didn't, I should have, that Aerosmith of all the band names I had heard was the most logical band choice in my opinion just because of their remaining relevance and just how broad their appeal is. But uh, what are your thoughts on Aerosmith pinball? I think that Aerosmith was, as we talked about before, the most expected of them. I don't think there's anything surprising about it at all. Uh, the art stuff I've seen looks okay. Aerosmith is a band that's, that's perfectly fine. And I think it makes a very expected, but very safe choice for a new music pen. I mean, if they're not trying anything different, it's, it's, they're just at this point, the music pens are just ticking the box of what you would expect for the based upon the older music pins that have come out. Well, until we actually see the pin, it's going to be difficult to say much else. But for anyone who's an Aerosmith fan and didn't hear this yet, uh, FYI. So anyway, Batman 66, that was the big one. That was the one everyone was expecting to see and see it. We did Tony. What'd you think of Batman 66 as it made its debut on the expo floor? Well, I was wrong. I fully expected it to be flippable. And I'm still in shock that it wasn't. But with that said, the art package is amazing on that game. <laughs> I love the art on that game. Yeah, I the art-wise, uh, I would say it was the best-looking game at Expo. Easily. Uh, yeah, I, it's, so, it's so unfortunate that we still haven't seen any gameplay footage of it. I mean... Okay, I understand the right half of the game because I've played The Dark Knight so much. Uh, uh, looking at the layout, I can see why it should be a lot better, fl a faster flowing game. I would say better flowing as well because I, I just I think Batman Dark Knight is not a good flow game. But the you know I see where the you know there more ramp interaction that's not getting lost in the it's just sort of more efficient in my view. So. Uh, I liked the look of that. Yeah, I, but yeah, it looked great. Uh, the screen integration looked good. The toppers on the two top top tier models of it uh, with a little bat signal projecting on the on the ceiling. That was a cool touch. I thought that was neat. You know, I don't know why it wasn't. Uh, it's all in the machine and everything. So I'm guessing it's software wise. They just didn't want it to flip. I'm sure the layout and everything is OK. It's not like a Whitewood problem or anything. It's just. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure there was some reason i'm i if there's anything they're probably still in the point of they could still be an alpha code or something or they're not they didn't have like the latest code updates with them and they didn't want to show something or have people play something that didn't have a, a good code installed yeah but i mean more likely than not is my guess what it would be with batman 66 it's just it looks good 
Yeah. I don't see where it's going to, I don't see where it's going to be real popular with, you know, like younger people, but younger people isn't really a pinball purchaser problem at this time. I mean, so it's definitely not going to be hurting them very much. I don't know if, it, if that'll cause it to have play problems, uh, for operators. But I don't know if it's a game that we're going to see a lot of operators picking up either at the price points. Well, I would assume that Stern's not not planning to have an operator demand for it, given that they decided not to run a pro model, and they easily could have had they wanted to. They could have stripped stuff out and made a pro. So that that at least to me was their symbol that this is on their boutique line and not oriented towards operators. I think that. Their plan with operators is probably to continue to rely on what I'm assuming are quite robust Ghostbuster sales, given how well that game is doing overall. And it seems to have such high demand that, you know, while this helps keep the line moving, it, I don't think they're, they, I don't think, I think part of the issue, we know about the, you know, the, the whole play field clear coat and all that stuff, which has caused some delays. But I think part of the thing here with, um, uh, mm-hmm with stir and pinball is that ghostbusters is doing fine. They didn't need to come out. Aerosmith didn't need to be announced yet. They're still selling ghostbusters. So I, yeah, I don't think that's a big issue. I don't get what the deal exactly was with moving the Batman super LEs from 30 to 80, the little math argument aside, which is, you know, a cute excuse for why they added 50 to the run. Uh, it's meaningless in and of itself. I'm sure it was, there was more demand than at, than there were than the thirty, but uh, you know, if the is the price still fifteen thousand, are the people who are in on the thirty still happy paying fifteen thousand after they more than doubled the run? Maybe I mean I don't know. Again, that's never been anything that was targeted towards me, but I bring it up because the messaging on this product is so confusing. I have no clue what is going on. It is a confused mess. I mean. Because they made all those big announcements and how there were the 30 super uh, limited editions and everything. And it's just, they've had some issues, as we know of lately. And this just seems like another kind of misstep. Just in there, how they've been handling announcements and how they've been handling all the normal stuff to do with this one. Um, And it just, they waited so long to release any images they had, you know, people were having to put their money down before they'd ever even seen the machine. And it just feels like a real lowbrow, not consumer friendly thing Stern has done with 66. Yeah. And that, for me, that's the issue with the game not being in a flippable format at Expo is it was yet again, people who've put already put money had to. In many cases, put money down on Batman 66, sight unseen, and they still don't know how it plays. Where they might have at the very least been willing to give up their deposit. You know, when I put, I, when I bought my house, I put a deposit down. If the negotiations didn't go the way I wanted, I'd have walked away from the deposit. It wouldn't have been worth getting stuck with the house to keep, you know, preserve the $500 I put down. So, it's, you know, to me, it's sort of, it's like they're experimenting with a, a new communication slash sales approach here in real time, and they're not very good at it, and it looks really sloppy. And it's unfortunate because they are the biggest pinball manufacturer, and maybe we we hold them to a higher standard because of that, and they maybe don't care for that. But, uh, you know, I don't apologize for making fun of their application process. It was stupid. And this is a blunder. 
uh, like it or not, it just doesn't make any sense. It seems like they're just making things up as we go along. And as we can get into, as we will get into when we segue to JJP and their endless limited iterations that they've been doing on their machines, changing your run numbers when you saying something's limited is pretty poor form, in my opinion. It's very poor form because people made choices based upon that knowledge of what it was going to be. And then you changed it. You changed what they thought they were putting their money down on. So anyway, Batman 66 looks awesome. Wish we knew how it shot poor messaging and sales tactics by Stern. Get your act together guys. Okay. More expo stuff. JJP. We say we're going to bring him up. Let's bring him up. Jersey Jack pinball. Let's start with Hobbit. Um, because that's the last to? we do because we're going to end with the better topic. So, that, <laughs> so yeah. yes. All right. So they announced that there's a new version of Hobbit, the black arrow edition. I don't remember or care how many they were making. All I know is another special edition. It's got a whole bunch of black trim. I guess there's even a black pinball, which sounds uh, annoying, but I guess you could always change that out. Anyway, what do you think of uh, black arrow edition hobbits is? Yay, there's another limited edition that they put out after the game's been out for bloody near a year. Uh, I guess it hasn't been that long. The game's been out for, what, six months? Uh, uh, I don't know anymore. I, I, we've probably had one on location for six months in, in the area here in Kansas City. Um, yeah, that's close enough. Yeah, and I don't know. putting out yet another that. limited edition. And they're, they're really good about doing. They'll put out an edition that's really expensive. And then they'll put out another limited edition that's really expensive. And then they'll put out another limited edition that's really expensive. And it's like, I just, I don't have that kind of time or money. And quite frankly, I don't like The Hobbit that much. No, I I think The Hobbit, I wish I had had more time on Wizard of Oz. I didn't get a lot of time in on it before it went away. I didn't care all that much for Wizard of Oz. I respected how unique its layout was, though. Hobbit is not a unique layout in my view. And I don't think it's a fun player. I think it's got an awful lot of long ball times because it's a wide body with nothing in the middle following an essentially standard fan layout. And it's got some clever tech in it, but anyway, I mean, we've, we've talked before about Hobbit. I don't know if there's honestly enough demand to really warrant another limited edition. It just seems like I, the, my issue with them doing that, doing the whole like Ruby Red edition and now this Black Arrow edition, it's just, it seems a little unfair to the people who go in on LEs when you make new LEs. I mean, I just. Yeah, it was I, just like the conversation we just had about Batman 66. Is you put your money down expecting there to be a limited run and that this was the, I mean, like, like the, the, what is it, the Golden Schmaug edition? Yeah, And you put your money down on that and you expected that to be the thing. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, and now there's the Black Arrow edition. And eventually there's going to be, who knows, uh, they'll probably come up with some other edition. And with Jersey Jack's problems putting games out in decent amounts of time, I almost feel like the rapid uh, changing of art packages for the same machine is just them kind of covering the whole, we haven't put a game out in forever, but here's a new edition of our old game. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a strategy behind it. If it, if it, maybe it helps sales. I, I don't know, but I, 
I guess if I was in on LEs, which I, and I'm not an LE buyer, I never would be. It doesn't, that aspect of rarity doesn't appeal to me in pinball, but I, you know, I would find it a little frustrating because it seems like a, you're loopholing your way through to do another LE. So anyway, uh, so let's talk about the good, uh, you know, the better news, the exciting news that came out of Jersey Jack. And that was Pat Lawler's unlicensed theme game was finally revealed and it was in a quite playable state and that would be dialed in, or I should say dialed in. Cause I think there's an exclamation on the end. So well, there's the most important thing to know about dialed in. It's good to see that red and Ted still have jobs. Yes. Well, you know, uh, here in Kansas, we've had some issues with ensuring that we continue to do road construction, but we're not a political podcast, so we're not going to dive into that. But it, yes, it's good that they they found new purposes in new cities uh, after their uh, tenure on uh, roadshow. But let's uh, talk a little bit about the, the game itself. Uh, let's uh, start with, well, I guess the uh, the art. I I looked at it. I Pat Lawler has worked with this artist before in the past. I think the art looks fine. I didn't. I don't oh, think yeah, it looks Batman good, but I, I think it. Yeah, it's it not ugly. Well. It's not. I thought it was busy. I, I think is the word I'm I'm looking for. And it was. I I don't mind there being an original theme. I actually kind of like there being an original theme. I'm just not necessarily sold on this original theme. But the game looks good. The pl- gameplay looks great. Yeah, I. Uh, Everything I've been seeing, I watched a little bit of gameplay footage today, actually. And from what I'd heard from people at Expo, by and large, I'd say it's been overwhelmingly positive about how the game shoots. So that's good. So for people who were worried about Pat Lawler maybe losing his touch, does not appear to be the case. The game plays well. The modes and stuff sound really exciting. I've heard a lot, heard and read a lot of discussion about the choice of the title dialed in. I don't really care. I is it lame? Should they have named it the you know Quantum City, which is the city to play? I you know I don't know. I'm not a marketing person. I suppose if the marketing folks are saying that dialed in doesn't send the right message, that may very well be true. But I think the whole issue here is you brought up the theme concept, so I do want to bring you know I want to mention that that this since this game doesn't have a theme and. Well, I'm not like the a lot of pinheads who want there to be more non-themed license. I don't have anything against a non a non-licensed theme. It's just that I think you basically give up sales for next to no good reason. I I guess you get you get full artistic license. So, you know, from an artistic standpoint, there's a good reason. And you don't have to pay the license fee, which is a good reason, but I think generally you pay off the license fees cuz you have the theme and the theme helps get you sales. No matter how bad I think the Hobbit movies were, at least I know Hobbit when I see the pin and I can follow along in the story because the story was already told to me in movies. And there are people who liked those movies. So what I think this does is with this this theme is I want to talk a little bit about the price point. (laughs) Of course, we always have to talk about the price points. The price point, I think, is awful for this game. It's a smaller game than a normal Jersey Jack game. It's not a wide body. So it's in a standard body and they didn't have to pay for any license yet. It's their most expensive game at $9,000 for the cheap version, which is an LE run at 6,999 units. And then they have a collector's edition. That's 12.5 K. And there's not to my knowledge, a whole lot of different, I mean, to their credit, it's just trim stuff. That's different. They don't change their gameplay. 
but $9,000 and they didn't have to pay for a license. They use for the toys and stuff, which I mean, it's jam packed. Don't get me wrong, but $9,000, it seems really, really high. I think this is the new reality of pinball uh, games. I think that the, I won't go as far as to say low prices, but I think for anybody short of, Maybe if Stern does keep up with pros, I don't think we're going to see machines under six or seven grand anymore. I think that ship is sailed. It could be. I I don't know. I'm a little. I'm concerned because again, with this game, in this case, I've speculated that Pat Lawler's the I should say Jersey Jack is selling the game off of Pat Lawler's name. So they've upped the price because they know that it's not going to be a location appealing theme. Now Jersey Jack's oriented to being boutique anyway, not an operator targeting entity, but they had a whole bunch of early orders, pre-orders already come in. And those are people I believe that were buying because it was sight unseen. They were buying off of Pat Lawler's name, which I'm sure there are tons of collectors out there who will buy uh, Pat Lawler stuff because they love how his games play. Well, yeah. But, you know, given that once this is unveiled, it doesn't really matter how well the game shoots. If no one gets to play it because no operator is going to run this game, then, uh, you know, no one outside of those who already want to buy all the Pat Lawler stuff is going to end up getting it because they're not going to know it. It's like dialed in. Okay, that's not anything. That's not a license we know about. It's not a continuation of anything. It's not Roadshow 2. It's, so it's it, there's no emotional attachment to the concept, even though the concept of helping you know a city in disaster works great, I think, for pinball. And Lawler has done disaster pins in the past. It's just, you know, it's you're not going to – I don't think there's a long – I think there's not a long tail on the sales of this game. And so I've wondered if maybe Jersey Jack priced it higher because they know it's not like Wizard of Oz and Hobbit where you you can also sell to fans of those licenses. Yeah, and that I mean that's always going to be a help. License that's part of the reasons license pens are so common is because they sell really really well because you can go I love this band, I love this movie, I love this whatever. And you have more reasons to pick it up. Um, now, I do think that there is a possibility of some of the new features that are appearing in Dialed In is going to be pretty cool. Uh, like, you know, the the Bluetooth capability and the, the selfie capability and some of the other things. I mean, we've talked in the past, I don't remember what episode, but we talked about using Bluetooth type tie-ins to your phone to allow you to you know keep track of like high scores and stuff like that as stuff that would be interesting and i think some of these things we're seeing are going to be some of the moves towards integrating the newer technology and the more standard pinball technology i'm not sure how much i want it actually taking a selfie of me while i play because i don't want to know what i look like while i play yeah, I I thought the selfie thing was uh was probably one of the more from an operation standpoint, operator standpoint, it would have been a really I thought it was a very clever idea. A good way to, you know, you could have the picture associated with the high score. But you bring up a good point. There are some people that are very uncomfortable having their picture displayed publicly. And so, you know, you get kind of it's a weird thing. Anyway, I that one made sense to me. The 
I like the idea of the integration with a phone. I don't know if I like the where it's going. Obviously, in the sense that I don't. Well, let me rephrase all of that because none of that made sense. Um, I'm concerned about the integration that Pat has chosen to try out. Of course, when there's anything new like this, you're going to have experiments, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. So. I'm not sure when you're in multi-ball, being able to use your cell phone to flip the flippers is something that's going to have any legs to it. Well, I don't see how that's even going to (laughs) work. Well, you know, I could definitely see people maybe giving it a shot if it's like Demolition Man and you get a bonus when you play with the handles instead of with the buttons. Yeah, but I'm not going to hook it. I'm not going to attach my phone in the middle of tournament play. And set my phone on the on on the pinball machine while I'm playing, and remember to reach up and slap my phone when I need to flip a flipper. Are you sure you wouldn't remember if it gave you a forty percent score bonus? Based upon how I've played and stuff in the past, yeah, probably not. Oh, okay. Anyway, no, I didn't. I so that's an idea. That's an example of an idea that I just don't think probably has legs in pinball. But you know, I thought. Yeah, I heard some others uh, suggest this idea, but if you had like the ability, at least in, you know, maybe disable that and, you know, when you put it in tournament mode, but in like casual play, having the ability for the other players to be connected through their phones and activate, uh, disruptors, problems, like push, if enough time goes by, they push a button and it, and it makes a magnet pulse and throws the ball off kilter. See, now that could be kind of cool. And I think it'd be even, what if, and if it caused a drain, for example, that player who did it, bonus points to them. <laughs> you could, get, you know, rage. you could have all sorts of, and right, right. And of course you can have all sorts of fun with it. Well, is this stuff going to be allowed in tournament or not? And I could just easily say, well, no, you could say, you know, put it in tournament mode and that stuff's all disabled. But, but for casual play, I mean, when most of the time when I play casually with people, either at my house or like after we're done at Pizza West and we go to Nup's Pub, you know, we play out the extra balls and st- we do all sorts of stuff that's not tournament mode. Well, yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, it's anytime you're not in a tournament, you can play it in a more standard fashion like you would at home. Right. And so I just, there are a lot of things I think you could end up doing with this that most pinball is played casually, not competitively. And I think that a lot of that stuff could be really fun, especially for, uh, you know, the millennial generation and how integrated they are with their phones. Just we go back to a unfortunately, they're going to walk right by this because the theme says nothing to them and the operator couldn't afford to put it on location anyway. And that's a very real possibility. So, I mean, I bet we'll have one on location, but we are very lucky here. And there are some other locations out there in the U.S. that are like this at well, where you have collectors who are not doing this for money. I mean, most pinball operators do it more for the love other than than anything. Otherwise, they do a bunch of claw machines and that's it. But in redemption games, but the notion, I mean, it's all already when we have a like a highway game or a JJP game on location in the Kansas City area, they're the most expensive games to play. They oh, already yeah. are. And. That's where I get concerned back to your point about that, you know, we may be dealing with a new pricing normal, which you could very well be right. And it really concerns me because while we've seen a resurgence in operated pens, I don't know if the American public is in terms of location coin drop going to accept when games go above a dollar. And I think that's a very real concern. I mean, anything more than I mean, a dollar. Okay, I'll slip a dollar in or four quarters. Or however it is, because most dollar machines anymore have a bill 
taker on it. And I don't know when you need to start paying a dollar and a quarter. Now, I think the way possibly around that is when they start going to the uh, pay systems where people can start using like their uh, the, the little tap pays like with your phone or something. They'll be able to pull away from it because people will not really realize how much they're actually putting into it. Because I know I'm very much... When I'm dropping quarters, I'm very aware of the quarters I'm dropping as opposed to I don't always feel the same like if I'm putting a dollar bill in or like I went to a place once that had vending machines that you they would accept uh, debit card and credit card. And it was totally different going, well, I've got enough quarters to buy a, to buy a soda and a candy bar as opposed to I want all the things. Yes. Yeah, so we'll just have to see where this all goes future wise. But anyway, at least the game looks like a lot of fun to play. So I look forward to giving it a try. So do I. So the last part that I wanted to talk about out of Expo was Highway Pinball's um, Alien Pinball, which has been known about for a really long time. They'd already revealed the playfield art quite a while ago. And they finally had a couple playable versions of the game accessible. There were a lot of lines, so I know a lot of people that wanted to play it did not get a chance to play it. Highway did put out a trailer for their game, which the trailer was awesome. Uh, Very impressive. Yeah, Uh, the trailer, I will give them that. Whoever put that trailer together, they did a really good job. With all of the assets, like the pop bumpers with little eggs on it and the alien head with a little tongue that comes out and grabs the ball and all that. Overall, I think it it looks better than it looked to me when I just saw the playfield art. It still doesn't blow me away. Art-wise, I would probably say visually, overall, the whole package is lower than the dialed-in game is for me, which in turn is lower than Batman 66. Uh, some of that just has to do with the cabinet design and stuff that Highway has gone with. I still like having that screen in the playfield, though. I think it's really, really cool. I do like having the screen in the playfield. The screen in the playfield is one of my favorite things. Uh, I know I'm not a huge fan of full throttle, but I really enjoyed the screen in the playfield. And at, I believe, around 6500 obviously, this is, of these new games that was shown, the cheapest option available if you want to <laughs> you want to go and get something. The gameplay, though, again, I couldn't tell a lot from the trailer. I had heard and read for some who saw gameplay that the reactions seemed to be mixed. Some people seemed to like how it played. Other people didn't seem to think much of how it shoots. Yeah, between reading online and talking to a couple people that were there, I haven't actually spoken with anybody yet who liked how it shot. Mm. But I've also only talked to two or three people about it. And then from, of course, online, like you said, is very mixed. Right. I remember when we were at the Pizza West tournament, uh, one of our players who had just gotten back from Expo said he saw it being played. And I, I asked him briefly before he had to go take his turn uh, what he thought. And he, he said he really, really liked Dialed In, but that he, he just – I think he just shook his head at me when I asked about Alien Pinball because he was wearing the shirt. He had a shirt. And I thought, yeah, oh, did, are, you, are you in on it? And he's like, no. And I didn't even like how it played. And I was like, oh, that's too bad because um, it shows you, you know, the power of theme. Uh, I love the Alien franchise. I, I it is one of my favorite sets of movies. Just the the four, the pure. Even the th- I'll even watch the third one. But I again, as an example Prometheus? to you pit to you pinball people, 
just because you like a theme doesn't mean you need to own everything that comes out with it. And so, yeah, I've already been very skeptical because Highway's design by default is a wide body. And as we all know, I do not care much for wide body pins by and large. So it's never been something that I thought I would end up getting. But if the gameplay was really good, it would be on my radar. It is not on my radar, unfortunately, even after seeing all of this. No, and it could still be. I mean, it could be like uh, something that will, once we actually play it, is better because everybody has different taste. So, I mean, there's no reason to swear that it's a bad game or say anything like that. I have no no real idea. I've just heard enough stuff that's not real happy about it for me to be concerned. Because I like the play field. I like what they've done with the art assets. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that did bother me with the trailer, or that I noticed, it wasn't a problem with the trailer, but that I noticed with, with the video clip integration, and I thought the clip integration was really good. At least in the trailer, none of the clips they showed featured any actors. And that made me a, a little leery, only because this game because is to put you either in alien or aliens, depending which selection you make. And without the cast, I have trouble believing that I'll feel immersed in the actual films themselves. Now I know the call outs are there. There are voice clips from other actors, though it has been confirmed that Sigourney Weaver is not in the theme at all. She's not incorporated in the game at all. And especially with aliens where she is the well not the titular character she is the primary protagonist i find that very very difficult to sort of accept from an immersion standpoint i get that you know hurts it i i mean i get that it's an obstacle that they just couldn't surmount i and i completely understand it's just it's really really unfortunate because she well she's not the only one with great one-liner quips in that film she has a number of the big ones yeah, she does. And I mean, yeah, they, they were obviously able to get the expected for any game based off Alien franchise uh, sound clips uh, without her and without, I think, really without the images of any of the uh, actors overall. It's definitely hurt, going to hurt it real bad. Now, I really do want to try it. I really want to play it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't know when i might ever get the chance because the person who owned full throttle that had it on location sold it yeah and i assumed he owned full throttle in anticipation for alien because again full throttle what sort of theme was that no one i'm sorry no one cared so i just assumed that now i thought it was interesting sort of playfield design all that but but i always just in the back of my mind thought oh anyone who's buying this is planning to get alien and I know he found out that Alien was not going to work by just dropping the playfield in, that he would have to also upgrade the computer technology in his full throttle. I don't recall what the pricing was on that, and I don't know if that was the reason that he decided to move it along. But obviously, with that decision, I feel it was a, he conveyed that he was not planning to get Alien. And we have another operator in the area, but I don't think he's buying any highway products. I, he's expressed concern to me before about going in on companies that might not last. And he wasn't talking about highway specifically. It's just a you know a philosophy for having support as an operator in the long term. 
where you you know you have that support with Stern. So I just the long story short is I don't think we're going to see it at the primary locations here in the Kansas City area. The primary being the big three where the pins are in great shape. So outside of a going to another pinball show or something, I just I don't know when I'm going to get an opportunity to play it. Well, we have been talking about going to Texas again this year, or maybe to some other big show, and I'm sure by that point that they will have playable ones somewhere for us to at least give a shot to. Though if the lines are anything like the Ghostbuster lines last time we went to Texas, it'll be a one-time thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> could be, could be, though, uh, that was the first time I got to play Full Throttle, and that line wasn't too bad. No, it wasn't, and Full Throttle is a perfectly okay game. I yeah, I liked buy it, it, but it's not a bad game. It no. has some things I really like in it. I think it. I think it was a very solid game for a first game out by a company that put them in a decent place to move on to bigger things. And now the question is just, is the bigger thing going to work or is the bigger thing going to crash into the reactor and everything go critical and everybody dies? Yes. And that would be a messy explosion. So let's hope that doesn't happen. (laughs) Speaking of explosions, let's go to our second segment, which is video games, because there was a big piece of video game news that exploded all over the internet this last week. I don't know how big it was because it, it was big. pretty small to me. It was huge, but huge. The Nintendo Switch was announced, and uh, this is the new, the official launch name of what was the Nintendo NX, and it is a handheld game system that has the ability that it has a dock, so it can be easily connected to a TV. Um. It's apparent to me that Nintendo has decided to fully embrace their control of the mobile market, or not even the mobile market, but the handheld market, and is not even really going to try in the console home market anymore. And I have to say good for them, honestly, because they weren't going to do it. They weren't going to keep up. And with their, with the people their games are aimed at and with the way they like to do things, I think this is their best chance to maintain viability. You may very well be right on that. I don't know exactly what I think of Nintendo Switch. I thought that the controllers they showed in the trailer looked pretty comfortable. I liked the controller look. Yeah. Um, and the mobile, the ability to disconnect the two sides, to have two controllers even on the go, uh, little that almost look like the old original NES controllers, uh, seems like a really cool thing. But it brings up the absolute biggest problem and the biggest issue and what will either make or break this system battery life yeah and i i would assume it's something they're very aware of and familiar with given their you know long history from the game boy all the way to the 3ds setups that they've dealt with but given the size of the unit i just i i wonder yeah battery life is a big one people will wonder about power i think it's safe to say since it is a portable unit that it's not going to meet current gen standards no it's not, and that's fine because when you consider current-gen standards, Nintendo hasn't tried to hit current-gen standards in forever. Right. The only real – and I think that's okay. The only issue that 
arises with that is unless you are a diehard Nintendo fanboy, and they have a lot of them, but yeah. setting that aside, it means that you need another, if you're a console gamer, or even you're not, you need a console or a PC with some power behind it if you want to play the AAA releases. So you end up needing Nintendo. You can't just buy a Nintendo and be like, oh, okay, I get to play 90% of the stuff that's out there. You could do that with a PS4. You could do that with a with a computer. You can't do it with a Nintendo. And so Nintendo becomes a secondary purchase. It's a, oh, well, it's the add-on just to play the Nintendo stuff sort of thing. Yeah. Or, that's the risk. And, the, and that is what it, I mean. Well, and the thing is, is lots and lots of people have uh, PlayStations and Xboxes and big computer systems and they still own 3DSs. Yes. And this is exactly what they are going after. And while I know they've said they've done their whole little thing that they're they're um oh, they're not getting rid of the 3DS, but the truth of the matter is that they said the same thing when the 3DS came out, they said the same thing about the DS and when the new and, or, and when the uh, DS came out, they said the same thing about the old Game Boy systems. And they keep them around for a year or so, and then they phase them out. And I think that's what's going to be happening here. Uh, and we will see how it actually ends up working for them. Like I said, I think it's the battery life is what's going to either make or break them. I, I think that that has a high likelihood of being the primary. The only other element I think could be major is whatever its initial price point is. Nintendo, unlike what we've seen in the past, not always, I suppose, but what we've seen in the past with Sony and Microsoft is those companies will sell consoles at a loss in order to make money in the long term on the software side. Nintendo has had a long history of always making money off the hardware. And I don't think they're going to buck the trend on that. So, but I don't know how much it's going to cost for them to pull this whole thing off. Right. And I think that's going to be a interesting thing to see once it comes out. Um, I have to admit, I'm really, really interested in this system, but for me, it's because of the mobile aspect, but then it also comes up to how it is going to be handled game wise, because one of the things that Nintendo has always done is it has always avoided putting certain... They, they've kind of had flagship titles that are their flagship console titles and flagship titles that are their flagship handheld titles. And it's going to be interesting to see how they go about this. Uh, we already know a fact for a fact that the new Legend of Zelda game will be on, uh, playable on this, is going to be on this system, released for this system. We know that, you know, of course there's going to be, you know, Mario's and all that stuff released for this system. But what I'm more interested in is, will there be new generations of, like, the Pokemon games released on this system? Because that is one of the, if not the biggest flagship title in their DS division. Right. Well, I mean, if it does actually, if they end up being this Switch is true the you know a total switch that they're in reality despite what they're saying now it's a phase out of the wii u which i think is a given and a phase out of the 3ds and it's just the switch moving forward then i would expect to see the pokemon titles on it if they actually try and treat the switch like a glorified mobile wii u 
and they only phase out the Wii U stuff, then maybe the Pokemon stuff still exists because the 3DS remains highly successful. You know, I don't know. Or you do it on both. I Yeah. I, I would know. imagine Pokemon in some form will show up on the Nintendo Switch just because I, it's Pokemon. I would assume so. Now, I would also like to say that their their com- their their ad, their three minute commercial, uh, whatever it is, the announcement commercial, as interesting as it is, some of the stuff in that commercial is just hilariously messed up to me. <laughs> I think that's a, a probably a kind of common thing for commercials of the time, and especially Nintendo, because Nintendo is very big into the whole friends and uh, playing your consoles and stuff thing. But like, like, like part of the commercial had them uh, had somebody walking away from or taking their thing to go out and meet and drink with friends. And, uh, (laughs) Another one had somebody sitting on and playing like Zelda at home and then picking it up and then going and getting on an airplane. And I'm just like, well, does the battery last long enough for an actual airplane flight in the first part? That's what I'd kind of like to know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the whole communal thing. And, they, you know, they've experimented with with that sort of stuff before in terms of whether or not it, how well it works. Though this does remind me I was listening to the Pinball podcast and Jeff on there brought up. Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles. Uh, That's a great Final Fantasy. And we're going to have to tell the story on that sometime because he was talking about how – because that one was the one that you had the the GameCube and then the Game Boy Advances would hook up to it. And we played Mm -hmm. that. Uh, And I just thought it was funny to actually hear another podcast, a podcast not about video games and bringing up a game which still defines a lot of our conversations to this day. So – don't let yeah. me forget. Sometime we'll put it in. We'll put it into a future show where we we explain how uh, you don't play that with Tony. Yeah, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. That game is perfectly acceptable. I played it just how you're supposed to. I'm sure that that's what you thought, but I read the manual. So let's uh, go uh, before we leave video games. We did have a question uh, come in from Don asking us uh, what video game podcasts we listened to. So, uh, I, I'll I'll go ahead and start. I have three that I listen to, and I've linked them all in my sh- in the show notes here. Uh, Game Room Junkies. That's mostly arcade video games and pinball machines, but they do cover console gaming from time to time. So it is a it it's one I wouldn't really push it if you're into modern games, but uh, on occasion they do cover it. So and it it meets the definition that Don asked about. So I'm counting it as a video game podcast. It is like us. It's a mixed gaming podcast. Uh, True Achievements podcast is another one I listen to. It tends to be a weekly. Uh, this is done by the owner and a couple of the operating programming types behind the true achievements website, which is part of the true gaming network. True achievements itself is an Xbox oriented site, but they also have true trophies and true steam achievements at the stage. True achievements though, is their big flagship website. It's probably the biggest Xbox website at this point. I've mentioned them a few times cause I do volunteer there as a uh, part of their game info team. They uh, have a lot of guides and stuff. The podcast is very news oriented. So they do a lot of time talking about the new releases. They do a lot of video game reviews through the site. So there's often a lot of discussion of their, of the games that they're reviewing games that are coming out. Very, very Xbox focused on the podcast, not exclusively, but so much so that if you don't play Xbox, I wouldn't recommend it. And uh, the final one is podcast unlocked, which is one of IGN's podcasts. It is Xbox 
specific. They do go up like we do in our intro, in their intro, they'll go and they'll hit on everything. And it's usually Sony is the other stuff that they'll start talking about, not hit on a negative way, just in terms of talking about, you know, stuff that's interesting, that's exclusive, but they also are very news oriented, but because they're IGN, they have really good industry access. So sometimes they have interviews with top heads at uh, development studios. They go to all the major conventions and, and gaming expos and all of that. So of the three that I've named, Podcast Unlocked is the one that I actually rely on the most when I'm trying to come up with ideas about what I want to talk about on this show because they're so timely and they're very consistent. And like True Achievements, uh, they are a weekly. Well, I actually don't listen to any of those podcasts, and I actually have not listened to a podcast in three weeks because I've been punching through the audio books of uh, Wheel of Time. So I've got quite a backlog, but I listen to three different uh, video game podcasts also. Uh, my personal favorite that I listen to is the Co-Optional Podcast. Uh, they talk about video games and things going on in the video game industry and people and stuff. And for me, it's less about the games and the game information and more about the uh people involved because i like the host and how they interact and how they interact with their uh, uh guests and stuff and they're a very much a pc centered uh podcast because as always their uh main host is total biscuit uh who is a large and well-known uh pc uh gaming guy who's done lots of work from uh, you know, like he does streaming of StarCraft matches and he's, uh, started off doing lots of like Warcraft stuff and StarCraft stuff. And he said that's his thing is video games on the PC and lots of Blizzard stuff. Um, and then the other two podcasts I listen to are actually, uh, just different sides of the same coin. I listen to the Giant Bombcast and the Beastcast, which is GiantBomb.com's East Coast crew is the Beastcast, and their West Coast crew puts out the giant, the main Giant Bombcast. And they are where I get all of my really big uh, video game news. They are... Uh, they talk about some of the same stuff, but they've got some differences in what they talk about and they've got personality differences. So I listen to them based upon the host and stuff is why I listen to both of them. I originally started listening to just, uh, the one of them, uh, the giant bomb cast because it's really long. It's like three to four hours normally. And, but it hits all of the video game news for, you know, PCs and consoles and everything pretty much every week. And the beast cast is, does the same thing except for it's not as long and it tends to be talk about, uh, different things in depth than the giant bomb cast does. So that's why I've started listening to both of them. And between these three podcasts, that adds up to anywhere between nine and ten hours of my podcast listening Whoa, a week. Those are long. Yeah. And they're weeklies? Yes, they're all weeklies. Holy cow. Okay. We need to have an intervention with them to explain how long a podcast is supposed to be. <laughs> because Oh my, oh my. Yeah. I, let me point out. <laughs> I guess I should go back and point out. True Achievements Podcast under an hour. 
Uh, IGN usually runs an hour longer if they have an interview for Podcasts Unlocked. And then Game Room Junkies is usually between one and two hours, but they aren't a weekly. Let's see. Co-optional tends to be between two and three hours, normally around two and a half. Uh, Beast Cast tends to be two hours. And Giant Bombcast is three to four hours. Typically, it's in the three range, but they occasionally have special episodes. And even if you don't listen to the shows, you know, regularly, uh, uh, the Bombcast always does a big end of the year roundup. And I recommend at least listening to those episodes because they will sit down and actually do tiered rankings of every single game that came out over the course of the year. They basically pick, you know, a top 10 for the full year. But unlike a lot of, you know, top 10 list, their top 10 list is them sitting down and they literally all sit in a room with the mics turned on and talk about all the games they want to put in their list. And they argue and the whole thing, every argument about why a game should be in the list or not, it's all there. It's not some random ranking. It's not who gave the most money. It's them just talking about what games they like and trying to convince each other what should be in there. And they post all of it. So it's not unusual to get those four or five hours and they drop those and they'll drop those. That'll drop to three or four days. Boom, 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 back to back to back as they record it throughout the, a week at the end of the year. I have heard good things about the roundups. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. Six podcasts to consider for video game content beyond ours, of course. Uh, speaking of video game content, we have reached the end of the video game segment, so we do have a brief tabletop section to transition into. So let's go to the third and final topic of this podcast, the tabletop gaming section. And Tony and I both got to experience a new game to us yesterday, in fact, called Speak Out. Tony, would you like to summarize Speak Out for the audience? Have you ever wondered what it was like to have the giant over-the-head headgear on and try to converse with people? Yeah, that's what this game is. They literally have pieces of plastic that hold your lips open wide, and you have to try and say tongue twister phrases to your partners and have them figure out what you're saying. It is the worst game ever. It was... An abomination. Uh, the game, I, I played it twice. The phrases, you know, it made, I, I get it. You've got this plastic device that holds your mouth open. So some letters like the letter B, anything that requires you to close your mouth really uh, becomes extremely challenging to say. I probably should have pulled what rules there were to better understand because it also seemed like the rules were extremely strict. You weren't allowed to pantomime. You weren't, I don't even, it It looked like you were just to keep saying the same phrase over to over. It's got one of those little minute hourglasses that you flip over and you just are saying the same thing. And yeah, it, it's funny. And you look funny with a plastic thing showing all your teeth and your lips torn apart open, but only for a little bit. And then it just becomes an exercise in frustration and it's painful. Yeah. It hurt. It hurt bad. It the hurt my gums thing, and the stuff. The plastic thing is painful. And so- Anyway, the name of the game is Speak Out. There will not be a link in the show notes because it's awful, and I don't want you to even read about it. I'm We're here to protect you. We're just warning you that if you're at a party and somebody goes, hey, let's play Speak Out, hit them. Because they hate Physically you. Physically strike them. 
That is what you have to do. This game is that bad. It 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 really it was really very it was extremely frustrating. Um, you know, some people if you like pain and you like tongue twisters and you like people having weird looking faces, uh, you know, maybe go with that. But uh, Tony played one game. I played in two games, and then we put it away and got out Cards Against Humanity because we'd much rather play Cards Against Humanity and you know destroy our souls than play that game again. It was for the best. So everyone in the end was a winner because it was cards against. Actually, I won cards against humanity because yeah, yeah, yeah. because I manipulate all the people because I know what they want to hear and I oh. play it for them. I just, I yeah, it's just, it's just what it is. It's just how it is. It's called preparation. We, <laughs> I'm sorry. So anyway, all right. Well, that's the end of the show, really. Uh, for those of you who want to reach us, as I often remind you, you can email us at eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us on social media, the best of which being Facebook, which would be facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast. We're also on the Twitter as eclectic underscore gamers and on Instagram as the same. And if you like the show, please sign up and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps the search algorithms actually show this game, which uh, game show this podcast, which has the word gamers in it, but does not have the word pinball or video or tabletop in the title. So we find yeah, we didn't that, think that out real well, did we? You know, and uh, on retrospect, you know, that coming up with the title was something that we just rapidly sort of did. I did a quick search through one of the podcast listings and saw that the name wasn't anywhere. Uh, and and so we went with it. And then, you know, there was an Eclectic Gamers podcast that like ended in 2012. They just they weren't actually in any of the podcast directories. They're on YouTube. So there you go. It's part of the you know fun of a, you know, they're only over what, half a million podcasts now. But we're we're the world's greatest one on tabletop pinball and video games. I think I agree. I bet I bet we could win that metric. But anyway, uh, we'll be back That's in two weeks. In Kansas City. Yes, especially. Yes, yes. Uh, so anyway, two weeks tune back in. We should be here. Uh, and I will just say I'm Dennis and so long everyone. Two weeks. I'm Tony. Have fun. <laughs>